today on the Jay Doherty Podcast. The U.S.-Chinese trade war has escalated at a rate like never before. My analysis on the markets and why Trump's Twitter account is the bigger thing to look at. Additionally, the Democratic National Committee recently voted against the idea of having 2020 presidential candidates participate in a debate on climate change. You'll hear me explain the bigger picture in the DNC and why I think this is the wrong move. And finally, we'll take an in-depth analysis of every subjectively relevant 2020 candidate qualified or not qualified to make it to the next Democratic debate. All of that and more on episode number 104 of the Jay Doherty Podcast. This is the Jay Doherty Podcast. And now, broadcasting live from downtown Chicago, here's your host, Jay Doherty. That is correct, ladies and gentlemen. Welcome back to another episode of the Jay Doherty Podcast. It is episode number 104 of the podcast, and it is Sunday, August 25th. 2019. Thank you very much for being here. There was a lot to talk about this week, a lot of news that has happened. We're going to be talking about the United States-China trade war. Of course, that's been going on for quite some time. New escalations and a little uh, tit-for-tat jabs at each other. We're going to be discussing uh, all of that. Uh, and what has recently happened over the past week, basically, that has escalated this trade war to hundreds of billions of dollars and increased the stakes uh, quite Quite highly. We'll also talk about this DNC vote that's not really getting that much media attention. Uh, yesterday, members of the DNC rejected a proposal that would allow 2020 presidential candidates to discuss matters of climate change. Why did they do that? And are they just trying to stick to their message? I'll answer that. And then also, these 2020 presidential candidates. There's someone new. We have some breaking news. Jill Walsh has entered. We'll talk about what I think about him. Uh, and then also, Bernie Sanders' new climate change plan. And everyone, uh, that is everyone on the Democratic side that's going to be coming up and uh, debating in the next uh, debates who basically seem to be the uh, subjectively relevant candidates as uh, judged by the DNC and by the networks who actually host the debates. We'll talk about all of that and more. Before we get to any of that, I just want to tell you that this episode of the Jay Doherty Podcast is brought to you by, sponsored by, with no monetary value whatsoever, the JDRC Politics Podcast. So if you're looking for a hard-hitting, intellectually-based discussions on international politics, listen to the JDRC Politics Podcast. It is co-hosted by me, Jay Doherty, and my good friend Ryan Clark. We have weekly, hour-long discussions on what is making the headlines all around the world. You can learn more at JDRCPolitics.com or listen in your favorite podcast directory. Okay, so now that we have that out of the way, we have a lot to talk about. We'll start with the United States-China trade war. So the trade war has gone to a whole new level of insane between China and the United States. The whole game, in my opinion, and many people's opinions, is just a tit-for-tat game. So from my perspective, this this war is uh, all just tiny little jabs at each other, ex- executed upon one in- one another at a consistent rate, and then they're all being responded to and by President Donald Trump of the United States and President Xi Jinping of China. So this is what I reported on the Doherty Files on August 14th. That's just uh, 11 days ago. I was talking about uh, on this very show and reported on the Doherty Files that, quote, all U.S. markets closed up high yesterday after the Trump administration decided to temporarily put off permanent or permanently remove tariffs on uh, select Chinese products, which is leading investors to feel hopeful the United States and Beijing could reach a resolution in the near future. The tariffs were originally scheduled to be implemented on Thursday, August 13th, and were delayed by the United States Trade Representative Office, which cited concerns that these tariffs would affect the overall national security and well-being of the country. Okay, I also reported on that same day, and this is a quote from the Doherty Files, and you can read the exact article on thedohertyfiles.com, and this is what I said. In terms of dialogue, it was reported and talked about on this show that, quote, as for dialogue, uh, Chinese Commerce Official Vice Premier Liu has spoken over the phone with both U.S. Trade Representative Robert Lighthizer and uh, Treasury Secretary Steven Mnuchin about the tariff delay. And here's the really important part. The high-ranking officials... Both plan to speak to each other in the coming weeks about when they can expect some of the tariffs could be imposed. So it has been just about two weeks, just a little under two weeks. And now, in fact, um, they were actually scheduled. The, the, after I published this article, it was made public that they were actually supposed to talk in about two weeks about these future tariffs. And it's now just two weeks, and China has gone crazy this week. And the United States has just responded. Now, 
President Trump has complete, complete uh, confidence in the whole United States uh, economy. At least that's what he shows publicly. I don't think that is actually the case. You can tell just from his speaking patterns. He does, and I don't. I know that sounds kind of uh, conspiracy-like, but you can tell sometimes when he when he kind of passes things off. Uh, and says they're not big deals uh, whatsoever. Like, for example, in you know elections and just kind of like AOC and stuff. This time you can tell he kind of seems a little bit worried about uh, what's happening. Yesterday he spoke in front of Marine One as he was leaving the White House, and he said this, saying that China, we are doing so great with China, you can't even believe it. But he did mention that we are actually going in a spat with China after he tweeted out repeatedly, uh, that China is now its enemy. Now, before I even play the clip, I just want to say, Trump has, for so long, in this trade war, made it seem like Xi Jinping was his best friend. And that is not the case. Not not the case at all. Uh, that wasn't the case before. That wasn't the case now. That's not going to be the case after. Uh, Xi Jinping uh, and Donald Trump, I suppose, have a good speaking relationship right? They, they speak to each other charismatically and very formally, but Trump seems to be tricked by appearance so frequently, and that's not a good thing, because he's even tricked by appearance when it's his own side, and if you are tricked by someone's appearance and someone's charismatic language, uh, you are a puppet, and that only encourages you to be the puppeteer of others, uh, and that even goes for internationally, like, for example, Benjamin Netanyahu. Um, Benjamin Netanyahu is clearly, or at least was for a period, a short period of time, clearly Trump's puppet. And uh, Trump even seems to infer upon other small, uh, smaller countries, like, for example, Sweden, that he is the puppet master. Uh, for example, when he got ASAP Rocky out, he could just call up Sweden for no reason and just declare and ask the uh, prime minister to let ASAP Rocky go, even though he committed a crime, at least from the facts that we know so far. Uh, and, he, you know, and he's actually being charged, and Sweden is a fair, you know, fair system, fair judicial system, and he was just able, he had the uh, authority imposed upon himself, or inferred upon himself, to just call up Sweden's, Sweden's prime minister to let ASAP Rocky out of jail. So, that that's just a little philosophy, but back to China. Uh Trump has said in press conferences and all these things that he has such a great relationship with Xi Jinping, even though Xi Jinping would literally, like, destroy the United States in every single tariff policy, um, would, you know, he would, he was the offense, Trump was the defense. Trump was trying to, you know, keep the, keep the, you know, everything going while Xi Jinping was hitting it. And that, that was the whole case, because Xi Jinping knew that Trump, you know, would go for this stuff. And China's smart. I mean, China's really, really smart in economic policy. And Trump would stick to this message that Xi Jinping is my friend, Xi Jinping is my friend. And then, push came to shove, and now Xi Jinping, at least publicly, is not Trump's friend. At 4 p.m. on August 23, 2019, just this Friday, Trump tweeted out, quote, For many years, China and many other countries have been taking advantage of the United States on trade, intellectual property theft, and much more. Our country has uh, been losing hundreds of billions of dollars a year to China with no end in sight. Very true. He goes on to say, uh, Sadly, past administrations have allowed China to get far ahead of uh, fair and balanced trade that it has become a great burden to the American taxpayer. As president, I can no longer allow this to happen. In the spirit of achieving uh, uh, fair trade, we must balance this very unfair trading relationship. China should not have put tariffs on $75 billion of United States product, to, uh, which is politically motivated, he says in parentheses. And then... He says, starting on October 1st, the $250 billion of goods and products from China currently being taxed at 25% will be taxed at 30%. Uh, and then he also says that additionally, the remaining $300 billion of goods and products from China that uh, was being taxed from September 1st at 10% will now be taxed at 15%. Thank you for your attention to this matter. Uh, now, th that is... Uh, very, very uh, interesting. I, I don't. <laughs> I, that that's what he says, right? And, and that that's his big announcement. But the tweet that really, really rattled the markets was the one that he said that he hereby ordered all American companies to start looking for an alternative to China for their manufacturing. 
that literally tanked the markets tank the Dow especially. The Dow was down over 623 points. It still is. It closed up uh, quite low. It's down right now 623.34 points at 25.628.9. The Nasdaq down flat 3%. Down That's down 200, nearly 240 points. And the S&P 500 is down just about 76 points at 2847.11. Big tech stocks took a huge hit. Apple almost down about 5%, uh, 4.63%. And uh, Germany took a big hit, of course, for unrelated reasons, but uh, there's just been a lot of economic rattling, only specifically because of his Twitter account. Now, you say, oh, well, he imposed the tariffs, and the tariffs, there's a trade war, blah, blah, blah. Well, these tariffs have not even been imposed yet. As I reported on the Doherty Files uh, just this Friday, uh, the Chinese State Council announced that it is imposing tariffs that range from 5 to 10% on U.S. goods. The State Council wrote in a memo that they were, quote, forced to take countermeasures against the United States. According to, this is the important part, uh, and this proves my point about how Trump's Twitter account is the one that's moving the markets, not these tariffs that which haven't even been imposed yet. According to China's leadership, this is me writing it on the Doherty files, all the news, just the facts, no opinion whatsoever. Uh, according to China's leadership, the tariffs will come separately on two dates, the first on September 1st and the second on December 15th. These dates are identical to the ones U.S. President Donald Trump planned to impose American tariffs on Chinese goods. So that's the important part. These tariffs haven't even been imposed yet. They're just scheduled, and this date could change. It's all subject to change. This is just a kind of a cold war. Hopefully it stays in a cold war. It will stay in a cold war, at least in uh, Trump's presidency, whether that is uh, two more years or uh, six more years. We're, you know, it's, it's, hopefully it stays cold. It will stay cold unless, you know, something crazy were to happen. China also reported, this is again from the Doherty Files, that they are going to impose a 25% tariff on U.S. cars and a 5% tariff on all technical automobile components. This separate tariff was reportedly to be imposed in April of this year, but has now been rescheduled to late 2019. So that is, you know, China's just escalating this very, 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 uh, like, to a, to a large extent. Very large extent, one that we haven't even seen before. Now, of course, this prompts a response from Trump on Twitter, of course. Trump said on Twitter in a series of tweets, quote, Our country has lost stupidly trillions of dollars with China over many years. They have stolen our intellectual property at rate of hundreds of billions of dollars a year, and they want to continue. This is what rattled the markets. This is the first, part one of two that rattled the markets. We don't need China, and frankly, we'd be far better off without them. So that's when he really turns on Xi Jinping. He would say publicly for so long that Xi Jinping was his friend. And he had Xi Jinping right where he wanted him. He was, he was controlling him. But that was not the case. So I thought that was really interesting. And I'm trying to find the, um, the tweet where he said, I don't know why I don't have it here, uh, where he said, I hereby order all American companies to uh, find different places um, to, to, to uh, manufacture stuff, which, of course, that has literally no influence on American companies. Of course, it'll tank, tank the markets because the president is saying it. Uh, but, you know, he could hereby order a hot dog if he wanted to. He can hereby order, I mean, that's just about as much as he can order. American companies are free to do whatever they want uh, in most cases. Now, of course, if there's like, you know, uh, like an emergency, uh, you know, in terms of, like, actual physical danger to people, and, you know, for example, like, Iran and North Korea, like, you can't have manufacturing there, uh, or, you know, if, if the president orders that, he can do that, but just for political and, you know, political and trade war reasons, he cannot just order, I mean, it's the functional equivalent of him ordering a cheeseburger or a hot dog, you know, he can order whatever he wants, um, but he ordered, he hereby ordered uh, American companies to look for an alternative to China for their manufacturing, and that rattled U.S. markets. So, the previous information was that, the, the, I like to sort things in terms of one, two, three. So, number one, this is what happened first on, around August 14th, so about two weeks ago. Uh, Trump was, uh, go, they were having trade talks, right? And, uh, Vice Premier Liu was having trade talks with Robert Lighthizer, a senior uh, trade official, along with Steven Mnuchin. The new developments 
were uh, that the Chinese State Council announced that it was imposing tariffs that range between 5 to 10% and also that automobile tax or tariff. Now, the new word developments is that in a response to China's response, the U.S.'s response to China's response to the U.S.'s response, the U.S. will raise duties on $250 billion on, in Chinese goods to 30% from 25% and increase tariffs on another $300 billion worth of products from 15% from 10%. This, though, did not rattle the market whatsoever. Trump's tweets did. And, of course, he's going to blame it on a Democrat, but a Democrat that hasn't even been elected into uh, an executive office. He is currently in the legislative office, Seth Moulton, who just dropped out of the presidential race. He said, and this was, I thought, that, I mean, like, how could you even blame <laughs> At 2.01 p.m. on Friday, uh, Trump said, The Dow is down 573 points, perhaps on the news that Representative Seth Moulton, whoever that may be, has dropped out of the 2020 presidential race. So he's, like, in the biggest trade war that has ever occurred in basically modern American history with a man who is like, who has advisors that are uh, beating him basically in uh, so far, not for long, but so far in in trade. And he says the Dow is down because some guy who's pulling at 0.2% dropped out of the 2020 presidential race. Nope, nope, that that is not the case. Uh, I think he could have come up with a better <laughs> excuse to blame the Dow dropping, uh, uh, you know, on something. Seth Moulton, yeah, okay, so we're going to talk about the 2020 race, but Seth Moulton is a very interesting man. Now, even through all of this, and this all sounds very confusing, and it really is confusing, but all you have to really know is that Donald Trump and Xi Jinping, leaders of the two biggest countries in the world, are in a battle for trade, for money, and it is rattling markets on both sides, but especially recently in the United States. It's literally jab, 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 jab. It's not like huge things coming out at each other. But the real question is, when will it end? It's a, it's not a war. It's just a lot of battles. <laughs> that That's what it is. It, it goes, you know, tit for tat, jab, 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 jab. And then whenever it ends, will be the end of the trade war. And we don't know when it will end. But Trump seems to have to be very confident in what he's doing with China. Because uh, on Marine One, when he was about to leave, yes, uh, yes, no, was it Friday? Yeah, Friday. I believe it was Friday. It could be Saturday. Uh, I will confirm that. Uh, Trump delivered remarks about China in front of Marine One on the White House, you know, right uh, at the White House when reporters were just so fervently awaiting him to ask questions about the economy. Uh, and this was right when, before he was about to leave for the G7 summit. We're having a little spat with China, and we'll win it. We put a lot of tariffs on China today. As you know, they put some on us. We put a lot on them. We're up to about $550 billion. They've been hitting us for many, many years for over $500 billion a year. So uh, they're hitting them very hard for $500 billion of year, a year. Right. That's very true. And uh, I suppose, you know, if, if you think Trump, what Trump is doing is right, then he's right, right? I mean, that's just the philosophy. But he seems really outwardly confident. And there seems to be a pattern here, especially within trade, where Trump will uh, seem very confident about a being or a person or a philosophy or a fact, and then he'll change his mind last minute when the decision is about to be made, at least publicly. I'd love to be a fly on the wall to hear all the conversations that uh, he has with his trade advisors because clearly, at least I hope, that his demeanor and the way he speaks and what he says is different uh, than what he seems to be saying uh, publicly because that would be very concerning if it was not because there's a big problem going on and Trump is outwardly confident. So Trump is on his way to the G... He is actually there now. He's at the G7 summit. Uh, he went to France to speak to Emmanuel Macron, and um, Trump was uh, was asked about this technology tax that France put on. Uh, Trump was not happy about this tax, and he was uh, basically saying, well, let's just start another trade war with another ally of ours. That'd be fun. 
which of course is, ne- I mean, in this case it's necessary, it's not, I wouldn't say it's a trade war, it's just more of a uh, scaled down little, you tax us, we'll tax you. Uh, but yeah, th- that's what's basically he's threatened uh, with Emmanuel Macron, uh, saying that uh, if you don't lift this technology tax, or at least you, if you don't, if you don't decrease this technology tax tax that you put on our American companies, we're gonna tax your biggest asset, which is of course wine. Trump was not happy about these taxes, and he made it very clear that he was considering taxing French's the French's wine. They put a technology tax on our tech companies. And it's not that I'm the biggest fan of the tech companies, the tech companies, because, as you know, they were very much opposed to the Republicans, and they are very much opposed. Those are great American companies. And frankly, I don't want France going out and taxing our companies. Very unfair. And if they do that, we'll be taxing their wine or doing something else. We'll be taxing their wine like they've never seen before. I don't like it. That's for us to tax them. It's not for France to tax them. Other than that, I have a very good relationship with, as you know, with Macron, as you say. And I think uh, we're going to have a very good couple of days. Yeah. Okay. So uh, that's what he says on that. I don't. <laughs> uh, yeah, we'll see what happens. I mean, I, he's going to have talks with them. That's where he's going. He's going to France. Uh, and by the way, I just want to clarify that. He did leave yesterday, uh, Saturday night, uh, for to to be in France uh, on Sunday morning, or uh, yeah, in in Europe on Sunday morning. Uh, he has met with uh, the new Prime Minister of uh, the United Kingdom, Boris Johnson, and uh, he's great. Okay, so if you want to hear my thoughts about Boris Johnson. Please, I I don't want to I don't want to talk about him really, but because it's not relevant to the subject. But if you want to hear my in depth thoughts about Boris Johnson and his uh, bus making skills, please listen to the JDRC Politics Podcast, episode number twenty four or twenty five. I'll link it in the show notes if you really want to listen to my thoughts about uh, Boris Johnson, uh, because. He is a very interesting man, and he had a basically a press conference, uh, and he basically and I don't want to play it right here because he basically interrupted Trump like every five words that he said, and he was just very traditionally enthusiastic about it, which I thought was quite interesting in, in my very humble humble opinion. So that is that. Uh, yeah, that that's what's happening in Trump, China, the economy, and France. That's all you have to know about it so far. It's crazy. It really is. And that's the summary. A lot of the the networks don't really give a historical summary of what ha- all has happened, both liberal and conservative. Uh, but this is basically what's happened um, so far. Uh, and what I like to say is, at least in when it's starting to become very detrimental, there was the previous information, the new information, the newer information, and then there's going to be newer and newer and newer and newer and newer, assuming this trade war goes on, which it will. We'll see how long, though. We're going to move on now, though, to some very interesting news out of the DNC, the Democratic National Committee. They have voted, the members of that fine committee, have voted to reject a proposal that would allow 2020 uh, presidential candidates to discuss matters of climate change. What does that mean, and why did they do that? That's next on the Jay Doherty Podcast. So, the DNC... Voted on this, propo- voted to reject this proposal that would allow 2020 presidential candidates to discuss matters of climate change. They made this move, of course, to stick with their message, and that's really not to the benefit of the American people. On this issue specifically, CNN actually wrote a very good piece about this, in in which they said, "quote Democratic National Committee members at their summer meeting on Saturday rejected a resolution that would have confused the party's stance." to bar presidential candidates from participating in single-issue or unsanctioned debates, end quote. That, they hit the nail on the head with that one, uh, and that's really all you have to know about the thing. Uh, they voted against this because it doesn't stick with their message. They don't care if it is to the detriment of the American people, and I'm not saying it's just the DNC. It goes with the RNC, of course, as well. I mean, all these committees, and... That's exactly the point. It goes against the committee's identity, so they will oppose the idea, which is pretty selfish in my humble opinion. 
the DNC is necessary, but it doesn't really serve a purpose other than to write the bylaws and, uh, you know, write the rules, serve the bylaws of the debates. I have for a long time agreed and continue to agree that if you for some reason want to support a candidate from either party, Democrat or Republican, you have to support their campaign directly. Not I, I strongly advise that you do not <laughs> d donate to either the DNC or the RNC at this fine moment in time. Uh, because it's better to just go directly to the candidate if you really have the passion to do it. So, and I'm not saying that this is like a, a this has been going on forever. Back in the 1900s and even the, you know, uh, late 70s, early 80s, and even, I suppose, longer than that, after that, the DNC and the RNC had real leaders, super powerful political leaders that had a huge influence, but to the committee's detriment, social media was invented and television evolved, which basically shrunk their relevance down to uh, about zero. And the numbers show it, too. If you look at their fundraising numbers from June, which are the latest relevant ones, Politico is reporting um, that they raised, quote, $8.5 million in June, and that's the month of the party's presidential debates in Miami. That's the Democrats, of course. So that's less than $20.7 million the Republican National Committee pulled in during the time period, according to these disclosures. Political also writes, the DNC also spent as uh, almost as much money as it raised, $7.5 million during that time, and finished the month with $9.3 million in cash on hand, while the RNC, leading up to 2020, had $43.5 million in cash on hand at the end of the month. The DNC reported spending about $221,000 on catering, $100,000 on event production and site rentals, $61,000 on event decorations, $50,000 on event consulting, and about $19,000 on security. Now, these files, according to Politico, did not specify which expenses were related to the debates in June. And by the way, I, I guess I stated this before, but if you don't know exactly what the DNC and the RNC do, they're basically, and according to their mission statement, which I'm going to read in a second here, their mission statement is that it says that this is what they say on Wikipedia, which I assume is, I mean, you can never trust exactly what Wikipedia says, but I assume they have a pretty tight grip on what their message wants, and I'm sure uh, this is somehow written by an affiliate of the Democratic National uh, Committee in the Democratic National Convention. Um, but this is what they say. The DNC organizes the Demo Democratic National Convention held every four years to nominate and confirm a candidate for a president, and this is where I disagree. They formulate the party platform. So, I don't know if they really have control over the party platform. Uh, neither the DNC or the RNC. But I want to keep going about, and I'll talk about that in a second, I want to keep going about this fundraising stuff. A number of major donors cut checks to the DNC in June. Hedge fund manager James Simons gave the committee uh, $319,500. Mark Galagoy, another New York investor, gave the committee 102500 and um, David E. Shaw gave the committee $35,500. So the expenses included $1.4 million on expenses marked fundraising services uh, and, and so many other things, millions of dollars. And you, there's a lot of broad terms in, in, these, in these disclosures. You don't really know exactly where the money goes, and that's my point. If you want to donate to a candidate for some reason... If you want to donate to Joe Biden, for example, donate to Joe Biden. Don't donate to the committee that will endorse him. If you want to donate to Donald Trump for some reason, you donate to Donald Trump. You do not donate to the RNC, in my very humble opinion. That's just my advice. Back in, if, if it was basically, I don't know, like 75 years ago, I would probably reconsider. Uh, but that is my uh, case on that. But back to, uh, so yeah, hold on, I just want to talk about, though, continue my discussion on the DNC and the RNC. Uh, these fundraising numbers, uh, in the big picture, you could say that the DNC is losing big time, uh, basically only because Trump, a Republican, uh, is the incumbent. These patterns reverse, though, when a Democrat is the incumbent. And I am not blaming the DNC for every problem that the elections face, though. I'm simply declaring that they, just like the RNC, are virtually useless in all of the areas they claim to be of service, or at least more so 
nowadays. Of course, they're good at the logistical stuff, but formulating a party platform is uh, kind of an understatement, and especially at organizing their de- debates. They're, they have a lot of oversight as to what candidates can talk about and not talk about, and many times to the American people's detriment. And that's the really scary thing. That's the really bad thing. I the, the biggest problem that I have with the DNC is that on the issues that the candidates can talk about, and this is all oversight and facilitated by the DNC, they make it so, and this is in collaboration with the networks, I'm not completely passing it off to the DNC, but on the issues that the candidates can talk about, they can barely talk about them because they have such short time limits, which incentivizes the networks, of course, to ask questions from which candidates can respond in a format that is conducive to a soundbitey environment. And then it comes full circle because the networks will profit off of that. And the only person to blame for not stopping this, the person who, other than the networks, has really control over the debates format, is the DNC and the RNC. And they do nothing. They let the networks get away with reality TV instead of a fair and democratic discussion of policy. And that, of course, gets good ratings, makes the TV personalities more famous, and it ultimately generates more viewership, which leads to higher advertising numbers in the future. And that is assuming that the debate itself isn't advertised. So, it's a money game for the networks during the debates. I think the actual convention is a little bit more dignified. This year it's being held in Wisconsin, uh, so maybe I'll go, maybe I'll have live coverage. Uh, but the, the, the convention, I think, is the big, the big win for the DNC and the RNC. Uh, they get good speakers, they put on a good show. I just don't know if I agree with everything that they push out in terms of debate format and how much oversight they have on these debates. So that's enough, I suppose, about the DNC. That's my little rant about the DNC. Let's talk about the big story, the climate change deal. Uh, Basically, this whole thing, their vote to ban, to reject a proposal that would allow 2020 presidential candidates to discuss matters of climate change comes out of the Green New Deal. This thing is hated by all conservatives, most of which uh, by Donald Trump. Uh, And he was actually at the, um, let's see, the Conservative Political Action Conference earlier this year in which he basically spouted out uh, his traditional hatred towards this fine, very progressive deal uh, to combat climate change. I think the new Green Deal, or whatever the hell they call it, the Green New Deal, right? Green New Deal. I encourage it. I think that, I think it's really something that they should promote. They should work hard on. It's something our country needs. Desperately, they have to go out and get it. But I'll take the other side of that argument only because I'm mandated to. I'm mandated. But they should stay with that argument. Never change. No planes. No energy. Yeah, and that's what he says. Okay, so obviously, I mean, that's just the oldest trick in the book for politics. People say that all the time. Uh, People were saying that. The Democrats were saying, well, I hope Trump becomes a nominee because Hillary could just crush him. Of course, that didn't happen. And basically, this Green New Deal, it has, while I don't really like the people who put put forth the message, it is a little bit better than, uh, what conservatives uh, in Fox News make out of it. So I want to preface all of what I'm about to say uh, by stating that I am an independent who is currently leaning center-left, I suppose, would be the closest thing. Um, Basically, I look at politics and where I'm leaning in terms of parties, not by center-left or right. I think it's kind of more like a number line that goes from negative 10 to positive 10, negative 10 being the far left and positive 10 being the far right. And zero being the middle. I am probably at about negative 1.5, negative 2 on policy, of course. Uh, yeah, well, yeah, yeah, I would, well, I, I would say more strictly in the presidential elections and things like that. And, well, if we were talking about actually the candidates, I'd be, I'd be farther away from Donald Trump as possible. But I am 
uh, fiscal policy of Republicans, when it's implemented correctly, can actually be very successful to the uh, small business owner. I have to say that. Uh, and But... I, there are so many big things I disagree with um, uh, about Republicans. For example, I hate that they do not think climate change is real. Uh, there's many uh, suggestions within Republicans specifically, not all, but some Republicans uh, that are not totally uh, acceptable with the government, or, you know, not, uh, they don't accept the uh, reality of LGBTQ rights and things like that. That I completely disagree with. But in fiscal policy, I have to say that's probably the best, the biggest strength that the Democrat, that the Republican Party has, and it's had for a long time, probably since Ronald Reagan. Uh, but I want to preface, as I've said, I'm, I'm still center, center left probably would be the best way to describe myself at the moment, and I will continue to retain my moderate positions until Donald Trump leaves office. So this means that I am not a big fan whatsoever of the very far-left radical insanity that is frequently suggested at the mainstream policies put forth by the Democratic Party. That is the big part. The super far-left AOC, Ilhan Omar, uh, Bernie Sanders, and others, that, that's, that at times radical insanity is frequently suggested by Fox News and other conservative networks as the mainstream policies put forth by the Democratic Party. I think that is a total misrepresentation of the Democratic Party, and I think Republicans love to talk about them because they know it misrepresents the Democratic Party. The only reason it is talked about is because these people, AOC, Ilhan Omar, they love to be on TV, they love to be on on the news, they love to have press conferences, they, they're very active on social media, they appeal to a younger crowd, they are younger, they are, like, in many ways, they're, I suppose, objectively smarter than a lot of the older Democrats that are more moderate, and the majority of the Democratic Party is uh, moderate, by far. And if you look at statistics, people, Democrats, even some Republicans, people in the middle that are making their decisions, they are far more inclined to vote for the moderate than they are the progressive. And those are the people who really vote. I'm talking about ages uh, from 18 to 35, 35 to uh, 52. I mean, those people like moderates. I suppose there is a new wave of Democrats that, uh, for some reason, are just uh, seem that they they because Donald Trump has gone very far right, they have to go far left, and that's just playing into his game. So I don't know why you would do that. But the 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 voting population, the people that the Democrats as a party need to appeal to, are the people who can actually vote, not the young the youngsters like myself. And I'm not falling for the trap that the that the very far left progressives uh, have set up in response to President Trump's tra uh, trap, uh, because that's just not right. I think voting. If you look at all of the numbers, and even what Nancy Pelosi, the Speaker of the House, the head basically the head of the representatives, the U.S. representatives in the Democratic Party, she realizes, and for some reason takes the side of AOC and others, but kind of doesn't at the same time. It's kind of, com they have a very complicated dynamic, the the squad and uh, and Nancy Pelosi. Uh, but it's very, very interesting to see how, for some reason, Democrats will go far left in some cases, but then continue to uh, stay moderate in others even when it, they know that the progressives misrepresents the majority of the Democratic Party. Lisa Friedman from the New York Times had an amusing article about the Green New Deal that summarized conservatives' thoughts in a brief yet comprehensive way. Ms. Friedman writes as follows, Republicans have cast the Green New Deal as a socialist takeover and say it is evidence that Democrats are far from the mainstream on energy issues. Uh, that's a perfect way of putting it. Conservatives hate this stuff. Uh... And I'm not, of course, I continue to maintain my central-left positions. Uh, you hear this uh, this talk of the Green New Deal always on Fox News, all the time. But it's often little tiny bits of tiny nothings that are taken out of context, both on liberal networks and conservative networks. That's uh, both. And they both use... And they both use parts of this to enforce their message and enforce their uh, agenda. To you know, Fox will oftentimes make it sound more far left than it actually is to prove that they're wrong, 
and then uh, CNN will make it sound a little bit more center or more to the right, uh, um, just so they can prove that it is that Fox News is wrong. So it's like a big response to a response to a, to a response. And that is very, very dangerous. It's not right. And to be honest, I have to say that Fox News is the one that runs the sound bites far more often than CNN because they know, uh, CNN knows uh, more, more so than Fox that the viewers are more susceptible to understanding what this is actually happening and more, more understanding that they could read it uh, and actually understand. And so that's the big problem that, they, that, that the networks have. Um, so... Uh, the networks will tell you all this stuff, they'll play these sound bites and things, they'll never tell you about the actual bill, though, and this is not just for the Green New Deal, this is for so many other bills. So what I'm going to do for you is read parts of the bill directly from Congress. So this was pro proposed, and these are just a couple of the first names that you can hear on here, uh, on this fine uh, uh, little uh, House Resolution 109 Green New Deal. Miss Ocasio-Cortez, Miss Talib. Ms. Serrano, Ms. Vargas, uh, Ms. Ayanna Presley, Ted Liu, uh, so many others on this fine bill. Uh, they This was referred to the Committee on Energy and Com Commerce, and in addition to the Committees on Science, Space, and Technology, Education, and Labor, Transportation, and Infrastructure, Agriculture, and Natural Resources, Foreign Affairs, Financial Services, Judiciary, Ways and Means, Oversight and Reform for a period to be subsequently determined by the Speaker in each case for consideration of such provisions as within the jurisdiction of the Committee concerned. This is what they say. A uh, 2018, October 2018 uh, report entitled Special Report on Global Warming of 1.5 Degrees Celsius by the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change in the November 2018 Fourth National Climate Assessment Report found that, quote, human activity is the dominant cause of observed climate change over the past century. Very true. Global warming at, uh, at or above 2 degrees Celsius beyond pre-industrialized levels will cause mass migration from the regions most affected by climate change. More than $500 billion in uh, lost annual economic output by the United States by the year 2100. Wildfires by that, by 2050, uh, 2050, will annually burn at least twice as much from the forest area in the western United States than was typically burned by wildfires in the years preceding 2019. More than 350 million people, more people, sorry, are to be exposed globally to deadly heat stress by 2050 and a risk of damage to $1 trillion of public infrastructure and coastal real estate in the United States and global temperatures uh, must be kept below 1.5 degrees Celsius above pre-industrialized levels to avoid the most severe impacts of cl changing climate, which will require a global reductions in greenhouse gas emissions from human sources of 40 to 60 percent from 2010 to uh, levels by 2030, and net zero climate uh, emissions by 2050. Now it goes on to talk about all of the provisions, and basically this is more of a summary of the study and then what Democrats want to do. But you can tell that that's not really radical, and that's of course I'm just reading the summaries of what they say. Um, but if you really want to, and I'm gonna I'm gonna have this all laid out on the website j-dorty.com if you want to learn more about it, but um, this is, this is the case. It's not super radical. It's just suggesting evidence from reports conducted by legitimate sources and then taking a very far left approach in combating it. So, I, I, I don't think it's radical. I just think it's really far left. Radical, in my opinion, is, I could play a bunch of clips of AOC's rhetoric as radical, just like I could play a bunch of clips of Donald Trump saying, you know, you have to vote for me. That is equally as radical as uh, AOC when she does crazy things and has done crazy things in the past. Uh, she, though, in my opinion, is... I, I don't... I'm not a fan of her. I'm not a fan of Ilhan Omar. I don't think the majority of America is a fan of them, even if they don't want to speak up against it. Uh, and I'm talking about people not speaking up specifically within Democrats. Uh, but... She actually does, she gets a lot, she gets smacked a lot harder than she should, in my opinion. She's, she's a lot of times really hit hard on, on Fox and things like that. When, a lot of times, if you watch, like, a full comprehensive interview with her, she's not as bad as they make her out to seem, even though she still is pretty, pretty bad.
That's what I'm saying. Just be, 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 understand exactly what you are talking about before you, uh, go, you know, before you go crazy. And I'm going to talk about that, and I'm going to go crazy in judging them. Uh, but I'm going to talk about what, what's happening with that, uh, and what's happening with other 2020 candidates, because Bernie Sanders announced a new $16.3 trillion plan to avert a, quote, climate catastrophe. And I'm going to talk about what uh, that means, additionally to some other candidates that have now qualified for the 2020, the upcoming 2020 presidential uh, debate. And then also Joe Walsh, this guy, <laughs> just entered the presidential race. All of that and more is coming up next right here on this fine Jay Doherty podcast. Okay, so uh, very interesting new developments here in the 2020 race. I don't want to give Joe Walsh really the time of day. He's really insane, super, super insane. He announced his presidential uh, campaign on uh, Twitter. Uh, he, first of all, just to give you some context, uh, this guy, Mr. Joe Walsh, was actually a representative of the 8th District uh, here in Illinois. Uh, he was a 2011, as the New York Times right, a 2011 insurgent Tea Party Republican, uh, and that's what he wrote in an op-ed in the New York Times, in which I'm going to read parts of, but before I get to that, this is what he put out on Twitter this morning, this fine Sunday morning, this is the breaking news that we have here on the podcast, Joe Walsh runs for president in 2020, I don't want to talk about him for too long, I think he's a total, in, like, super insane, uh, but here he is, this is Joe Walsh. When I first started thinking about running for president, talking to my family, close friends, people I trust, I started hearing about all the things I needed to do to test the waters. Start an exploratory committee, hire a speechwriter, get an image consultant, all the, the practical steps that conventional candidates take. But these are not conventional times. These are urgent times. Okay. Let's be real, these are scary times. So the hell with all those conventional things. Today I'm declaring my candidacy for President of the United States because it's time, it's time to be brave. We have someone in the White House who we all know is unfit. Yep. Someone who lies virtually every time he opens his mouth. And someone who places his own interest above the nation's interest at every single turn. We cannot afford four more years of Donald Trump. Okay, all right. No so way. then it goes on. Now, you could take that message out there and think, oh, wow, this guy sounds like a decent Democrat. Well, he's actually not. He's a Republican, believe it or not. And he is challenging Donald Trump. Now... You might think, well, just hearing that so far, and I haven't played the whole thing. If you want to watch the whole thing and waste your time, you can go ahead and find it on my website. But the Joe Walsh is, he sounds like a good guy in that video, right? He's crazy, though. Absolutely insane. He represented the 8th District in Illinois, and then he went on to be a conservative uh, talk show host. But he said um, on June 19th, 2014, he said, uh, quote, found, and this is on Twitter, Found out if I if I said Redskins or Cracker or Redneck Bible Thumper, I could stay on. But if I said N-word, he actually spelled it out with a hard R or spick, they would cut me off. He said that. And they also called President Obama a traitor. And also said that um, Fox News' Sean Hannity is not understanding why Obama won't criticize them. And this is his quote. Sean just said Obama is clueless. He's not clueless. He's Muslim. Um... He also said that, uh, let's just see here, uh, according to this article from the Washington Examiner, uh, this is what the, this article says, elsewhere that year of after a gunman killed five police officers in Dallas, he warned that, quote, a real America was, quote, coming after the Black Lives Matter punks, adding further they, that they should watch out. Uh, he, he's crazy. And he even said, this is really, I mean, this is just where it gets even more. This is like a direct threat. He said, on November 8th, I'm voting for Trump. On November 9th, if Trump loses, I'm grabbing my musket. You in? I mean, come. Like, this guy's running for president? I mean, who's gonna, people just have to listen to these facts. I don't know where he stands on policy, but it's certainly worse than Trump on rhetoric. Than rhetoric on rhetoric. He wrote an op-ed in the New York Times on August 14th before he actually announced for president, uh, and he was on CNN and all these other networks promoting and teasing a presidential run. He announced this morning he had an interview with ABC's George Stephanopoulos, and this is what he said 
in the New York Times. He really bashes Trump. Doesn't even give him uh, the benefit of the doubt on policy or anything like that, which a lot of conservatives agree with. Eight years later, Mr. Trump has increased the deficit more than $100 billion year over year. Now It's now nearing $1 trillion, and we uh, hear not a word of protest from my former Republican colleagues. He abuses the Constitution for his narcissistic trade war. In private, most congressional Republicans oppose the trade war, but they don't say anything publicly. But think about this. Mr. Trump's tariffs are a tax increase on middle-class Americans and are devastating to our farmers. That's not a smart electoral strategy. End quote. Now, I agree with a lot of what he says in this, in this fine thing, objectively. But if you combine that with all of the craziness, he's promoted, like, super ridiculous conspiracy theories on his radio show, almost nearing Alex Jones levels. And now he's running for president. This guy seems just to be kind of insane. Really, really insane. Now he's running for the president of the United States. Worse than Trump on rhetoric. Could you imagine that? He said the N-word in full, you know, on full spread out on it, you know, with the full letters, the hard ER on his, on his, uh, on his tweets. He has said that Obama is Muslim. He said something about on a New Year's tweet that Obama is Muslim. Like, he's just insane. Really, just a crazy guy. Uh, and I don't know how long it'll be until he drops out. I don't know how much, um, money he'll actually raise. That'll be really interesting. We'll follow all of that. Uh, but that's just, well, we're just going to have to see what time tells on that. So, in the first debate, though, and now we're going to switch over to Democrats, uh, and I'm going to talk about Bernie Sanders' new $16.3 trillion policy uh, that he's laid out to uh, com- combat climate change, and it goes by the same name as the Green New Deal. But before we get to that, I want to talk about these debates. So, uh, this third debate is going to be super uh, exclusive. This is the most exclusive debate that we've had so far. Um, in the first debate, uh, Joe Biden, Cory Booker, Pete Buttigieg, Julian Castro, Kamala Harris, Amy Klobuchar, Beto O'Rourke, Sanders, Warren, Yang, Bennett, de Blasio, Delaney, uh, Gabbard, Gillibrand, Hickenlooper, Inslee, Ryan, Swalwell, those were the ones that participated in the first debate. Okay, that was like the, basically, you just had to make a very easy cut. That was 1% in at least three polls or $65,000. That's either or, not both. Now, Steve Bullock didn't make it then, Wayne Massam didn't make it then, Seth Moulton didn't make it then, and this other guy, Saystack, didn't make it then. Then, it was a little bit more exclusive, but actually, it wasn't even exclu- uh, more exclusive, it was, just, um, it, was, it was just the same requirements previously, and it gave people more time to uh, vote, or to, to increase, right? Uh, so, in the second debate, you had to have 1% in three polls, or 65,000 donors. Uh, Joe Biden, Cory Booker, Pete Buttigieg, Julian Castro, all these people, all the same, all the same, all the same, except Swalwell dropped out and Steve Bullock made the cut. So they lost one and gained another for the second debate. Now, the third debate is really exclusive. You have to have 2% in four polls and 130,000 donors. So that's not either or, that's both. You have to have 2% in four polls and over... 130,000 donors. And that doesn't it doesn't matter how much money. I mean, you could literally raise 130,000 $1 bills if you wanted to as long as you have 130,000 donors. That's why you see all those ads on Instagram and on uh, websites. They say donate $1 today. It's not because they desperately need your $1. Well, of course, a bunch of dollars make a lot of money, but that's not why. They just want it so they can qualify for the next debate and promote their message on the main stage when millions of people watch. The only people that have made it to this next debate who have $130,000 in rank 2% in at least four polls, Joe Biden, Cory Booker, Pete Buttigieg, Julian Castro, Kamala Harris, Amy Klobuchar, Beto O'Rourke, San- Bernie Sanders, uh, Elizabeth Warren, and Andrew Yang. So that still leaves Ms. Gillibrand out. It leaves... Uh, Bill de Blasio out, it leaves Michael Bennett out, it leaves all of them out. Now, these are basically, to be honest, these are the relevant candidates, and uh, I don't think anyone uh, could possibly debate that. I mean, these are the people that are getting the most traction. I would say um, all of these people are are electable, with a little bit of question on, uh, well, actually, except for Beto O'Rourke, and with a little bit of question on Julian Castro, I would say. 
little bit, little bit there, a little bit there, but uh, uh, I would say that pretty much all of them, the majority of them, the overwhelming majority of them are electable. They could easily become the nominee, and one of them probably will. So that's what's happening uh, on that front. Um, very, there's a really uh, good, a comprehensive article in the Washington Post about all of this, uh, and we'll have it linked on the website, of course. But um, they write in part the most stringent rules that the Democratic National Committee laid out for the fir- third debate. Of course, they're the ones making these rules, not the networks. Are an attempt to narrow the historically large field. Four candidates have dropped out of the race in July and August: Representative Eric Swalwell and uh, John Hickenlooper, Jay Inslee, and Seth Moulton. For bubble candidates, time is running short. Pollsters don't typically announce when they'll publish future results, but the 18 polling organizations that the DNC includes in its tally have collectively released one poll every two to three days. These three candidates still have a shot at making the stage. That's according to the Washington Post. These three candidates are Tom Steyer, who's like a billionaire, he, he and uh, Tulsi Gabbard, and... Uh, Kirsten Gilbrand. Now, Tom Steyer has pledged to donate uh, $100 million of his own money, which is a lot, because Pete Buttigieg, uh, Bernie Sanders, they're up there in the $25 million, and that's top, top pre-existing candidates. Tom Steyer, a billionaire, has pledged to donate $100 million to his campaign. And while you think, wow, oh yeah, that guy could just buy the election. Well, that's actually not true, because you have to have individual donors donate to your campaign. So, unless he has 130,000 children... And that he each gives them one dollar, then he cannot. If you if you literally if you go on Instagram uh, or if you go on any of these social media networks, you will see ads for Tom Steyer say donate at least one dollar. All you have to do is donate one dollar, and that's what you have to do. You just have to donate one dollar and help me get into the race. Kirsten Gillibrand has also been sending emails saying all you have to do is donate me donate to me uh, to to make it to this cut, and you need uh, to help me. And that's the that's the thing. Now the real challenge, though, really is the qualifying polls. Tom Steyer uh, just needs one more poll, one more poll to qualify. Tulsi Gabbard needs two, and Kirsten Gillibrand needs three more polls. And Gillibrand hasn't even met the donor requirement, but she did say that she has one hundred fifteen thousand, so she just needs about fifteen thousand more. And that was as of uh, Thursday. So uh, Tom Steyer, Tulsi Gabbard, they met it. They met the donor requirement. They just need polls. And I think Tom Steyer will actually make it. Uh, and maybe Tulsi Gabbard. We don't know. It's really interesting. Uh, and, you know, it, it, it's... We're going to follow all of this, of course, um, and see, really, because this is... When people talk about election reform and finance reform, and campaign finance reform, which, of course, we need desperately in America. There should be a cap on how much money you can spend. But it really makes it challenging uh, for candidates like Tom Steyer and other billionaires that may want to run because they need to have unique donors donate to their campaign. And that, because those super wealthy billionaires live on a whole other planet than us regular people, it makes it very hard for them to appeal generally unless they have a great message. makes them very hard to appeal when they're first starting out, generally, to a broad audience. Now, of course, they could spend money on advertising and, and do all that, and really, the advertising companies are the ones that make all the money off of these elections, uh, but they could spend all their money on advertising and stuff. That still doesn't mean, though, that they're paying people to donate to them. In fact, they could literally pay off people to donate to them. Of course, that would be illegal, but <laughs> they could pay people $5 to donate to them $1, and that could be a part of the total $100 million that he donates to his campaign. So money still buys a lot of things, just indirectly, and there needs to be definitely some reform on that front. Okay, uh, let's talk about Bernie Sanders. So he is the one in the spotlight this week uh, for this show. Uh, according to the Washington Post, Bernie Sanders has unveiled a $16.3 trillion plan to avert a climate catastrophe. The release of Sanders' plan comes days after the exit of the race from Washington Governor Jay Inslee, who has built his bid around creating an evergreen economy for the United States. He was crazy, that guy. He was so obsessed with climate, uh, and just, which is, there's a big audience for that. I'm not going to say, I mean, I, I, I think climate change is very important, but in nearly every single question <laughs> that was asked to him, 
he would say, he would bring up something about climate change, you know? I mean, he, he was super, super obsessed with climate change, uh, to, uh, yeah, which was just interesting, but he's not in the race anymore, so I don't know why I'm talking about him. The blueprint, which, of course, the Washington Post lays out, is the most expensive by far of those released by the Democratic White House hopefuls as they seek to position themselves as the contender most dedicated to combating climate change, a salient issue for liberal primary voters. Very true. He laid out this very long proposal. Uh, it's not by page, but it's pretty long. I would say uh, over 5,000 words by far. He writes in the first paragraph, Climate change is a global emergency. The Amazon rainforest is burning, Greenland's ice shelf is melting, and the Arctic is on fire. People across the country and the world already experiencing the deadly consequences of our climate crisis as extreme weather events like heat waves, wildfires, droughts, floods, and hurricanes append entire communities, ecosystems, economies, and ways of life, as well as dangerous millions of lives. Community of, communities of color, working-class people, and the global poor have borne and will bear this burden disproportionately. So, Bernie Sanders uh, now making this a huge uh, forefront of his campaign. Uh, just some headlines here in his, in his uh, fine proposal. As president, Bernie Sanders will avert climate change catastrophe and create 20 million jobs. Okay, <laughs> you gotta be pragmatic for this. Now, of course, this is the really crazy thing that he lays out. He, t he says that he's gonna end employment uh, by creating, t end unemployment completely. At least you can infer that it's completely, because he doesn't say otherwise, by creating 20 million jobs needed to solve the climate crisis. These jobs will be good-paying, union jobs with strong benefits and safety standards in steel and auto manufacturing, construction, energy-efficient retrofitting, coating and server farms, and renewable power plants. We will also create million um, uh, millions of jobs in sustainable agriculture, engineering, and a reimagined and expanded civilian conservation corporation, and preserving our public lands. Now, here's the really crazy thing. He wants to directly invest a historic $16.3 trillion public investment with taxpayer money towards these efforts in line with the mobilization of resources made during the New Deal in World War II, but with an explicit choice to include, back, uh, include black, indigenous, and other minority communities who were systemically excluded in the past. So, uh, okay. I don't know. $16.3 trillion? You really think that's going to make it through Congress? Really, I mean, $16.3 trillion, you know how much that would add to the national debt? I'm all for climate change and the, pro, the uh, total probation of it, or the prohibition of it, but really, $16.3 trillion? And that's a little bit more radical, actually a lot more radical than the Green New Deal. So I don't know why that's not being talked about on Fox News. Um, the other thing they want to do is rebuild the economy and ensure justice for frontline communities and just transition for workers. Now, they go into all these details, and I'm going to link this whole proposal and uh, highlight all of my favorite parts of it, and you can read it on the website, j dorycom It's a very interesting uh, proposal, very, very radical, outwardly radical, but and that's nothing new from, uh, from this whole deal here with, with everything in the 2020 presidential race. Uh, and all progressives in Congress and out of Congress. The other news this week, uh, or at least the past week, has, uh, is that Washington Governor Jay Inslee dropped out of the race. As I wrote on the Doherty Files, uh, Jay Inslee wrote to, in an email to supporters, quote, I want to continue to stand with you in opposing Donald Trump and rejecting his hurtful and divisive agenda while strengthening and enhancing Washington State's role as a progressive beacon for the nation. Additionally, Massachusetts uh, Seth, um, Representative Seth Moulton, as Trump uh, blamed him for the Dow dropping uh, hundreds of points, he says, additionally, Seth uh, Moulton dropped out of the race. This is what I say. Additionally, Seth Moulton dropped out of the race due to low fundraising numbers and a lack of statistical traction. In the spotlight recently, though, billionaire philanthropist Tom Steyer, who recently entered the presidential race, in early July, he's pledged to spend $100 million of his own money to enhance and fund his presidential campaign. That's nearly four times what top pre-existing candidates have raised. That's what I said on the website. I suppose that's more of a summary of everything I just said, except with minus the opinion, which takes up the time. So yeah, that's 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 the updates for this week. That's the Jay Doherty podcast uh, we talked about today: U.S.-China trade war, uh, the previous information, the new developments, and the newer developments, the Democratic National Committee vote, 
about climate change and the Green New Deal, and also these 2020 presidential candidates. We talked about everyone qualifying for the next debates, everyone not qualifying for the next debate. Joe Walsh and uh, special focus on Bernie Sanders there. Very interesting episode this week. A very interesting week in politics and especially within the economy. It was really interesting. It's Jay Doherty Podcast, episode number 104, Sunday, August 25th, 2019. Wrap it up right now, uh, one hour and five minutes just about into the podcast, and it is 11.38 and 11 seconds a.m. as we end the podcast. Thank you for being here. We will be back next week to bring you all the news. You know, I start school tomorrow, so uh, maybe we'll have a delayed schedule. I will let you know, though. If you follow me on Twitter, you will be updated about the latest information about everything that I do on this podcast and all the latest stories from the DohertyFiles.com. We appreciate your existence and appreciate your listenership. Give us a good rating on iTunes and help out the podcast in any way you can. The number is 312-625-8492. If you want to share with me your thoughts for the next episode, text in or leave a voicemail and I'll be sure to read it or at least mention it in some form on the website. j-dorty.com is the website. Thank you so much for listening. We'll be back next week for episode number 105. The J. Doherty Podcast is hosted in the J.D. Media Network Studios in Chicago, Illinois. The J. Doherty Podcast is hosted, produced, edited, and mixed by J. Doherty. TJDP is voiced by Newsmic VoiceOver, hosted by Blueberry, and edited with Audition. The J. Doherty Podcast is a J.D. Media Network production. Copyright J. Doherty 2019. Make sure to listen to other JD Media Network productions like the JDRC Politics Podcast for weekly discussions on international politics or listen to the Weekly File Podcast for all the news, just the facts. Learn more and hear more of this content at j-doherty.com or view archive clips and show highlights at thedohertyfiles.com or listen to other JD Media Network productions in nearly any podcast directory. Thank you for listening to this episode of the J. Doherty Podcast.